You are listening to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the advancing journeyman developer. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. Time uh, finds a way. We're talking about dates and times and how they can absolutely ruin your day in programming. This is going to be a bit of a history lesson, but we'll hopefully give you a starting point for understanding why this gets a lot more complicated than you'd like. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, we just got back from Indianapolis uh, last night. My wife ran in the marathon, uh, made it all the way through. No medical issues, no you know heat stroke going to the hospital this time, which was which was nice. I got to say, I, I I really like Indianapolis, especially like Bub's restaurant. I had a very good meal there. I had a three quarter pound elk burger a huge thing of chili cheese fries and then a bowl of chili. And if they'd had a slice of apple pie, I would have had an apple pie slice. Nice. Yeah. It was not like, okay. Like I ate so much that the next morning it was time for breakfast and I'm like, nah, <laughs> just not even. <laughs> oh, wow. That's that never happens with you. <laughs> yeah. That's, Ever. I, yeah. I mean, I kind of have a reputation for like I eat. Yeah. That said, I would not recommend um, driving, you know, taking a five hour road trip when you're two weeks after uh, hernia surgery, just sitting in the car for extended periods of time is fairly painful. Uh, driving's a little worse. Driving in traffic is a lot worse. You know, so brake gas, brake gas, not so good. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a little bit rough. I, I have regressed a little bit as far as pain um, from where it was before. So I'm hoping that that kind of gets fixed. Also, last week we paid WordFence to clean up our website. So some goober uh, decided to sell knockoff purses through the website and this was back in june or july i think Um, and we got the hack knocked out pretty much by ourselves except we missed uh some stuff that was in some header files or something and it was basically going hey is this the google user agent if it is a google user agent then try to sell these knockoff purses exactly and it was screwing all kinds of stuff up like it was screwed up our google play feed and a few other things Mm -hmm. and you know i i find a little bit of humor in Thinking about the kind of person who would go to a website, see my face and your face on there, and then go, yeah, I'm going to buy a knockoff coach purse from those guys. I'm, I, I just want to see what this person looks like. Because I, I kind of think this is the sort of person that, you know, like like you're going down the road and there's like one shoe. Like, that's the person that owns that shoe. Hey, kid, want a purse? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> want to buy a purse with edge? <laughs> it's an edgy purse. <laughs> I don't know, man. I just, I, I just can't. I can't visualize the kind of person that do, that would do that. But I think they would lose a shoe on the highway. <laughs> I, I, I just think that those those two two points in the hyperspace are really close together. So anyway, how about you? Well, oh, wow. <laughs> I follow that up. Oh, let's see. You're talking about your meal. There reminds me that I made chili again this past week. Really good. Went uh, a little bit heavier on the spices than I did last time. Like, I, I make it in the crock pot, so I, I have it cooked for a couple hours, and then I taste it and kind of see where it is. And I taste it, and I was like, whoa. Like, it, it was it was on the level that you would get when you have a sinus infection. 
Yeah, and I've done that to my family a couple of times because I get uh, jalapenos and I roast them and, and then you know, I put them in the chili pot. And this past year, I guess wherever they come from, uh, it's probably like northern Mexico or something You know, yeah. when, it's, when it comes here. I guess there was a drought or something. I'm not sure exactly what directly affects the the, the peppers, but I've had I've had some chili that was it was hard for me to eat, and you know my family tried to eat it, and it was <laughs> that was not okay. No, no, I'm I think not. I still have some of it actually. <laughs> so so, anyways, I, uh, I I taste it. I'm like, yeah, I could. I could survive this chili, but I would not enjoy it. You put uh, sour cream in it to cut that. Yeah, but I'm I'm still cooking it. Like we're oh, only two okay. hours two hours into like an eight hour process. Yeah. So I cut it with beer. Yeah. I'm gonna tell you something I do with which, mine. Which, by the way, the uh, the Black Abbey Brewery <clears throat> here in town, their rose beer really good in chili. I, I'm it's surprised. A blonde ale. I'm surprised you would have used any of that in your chili though. It was either that or uh, or wine uh yeah i guess if it's it's not because it's bad it's because like you like it like yeah it's one of my I, I can't visualize you using yeah. it um one thing i do is i put a couple of tablespoons of dark cocoa in it you know like the unsweetened yeah to it it just seems to add a lot to the flavor um but yeah okay. it's, cool. it's about time to make some chili yeah it's it's that it's and i got a bunch season. of venison so it's time yeah by the way i, I need to get some from you yeah so. so today i spent the day debugging someone else's code we had a problem come up last week, and we fixed that one, but then it led to this one, uh, which was hidden by the other bug, and then it was another bug was hidden by that one. I spent all day in there. like I, get, I would knock one out, and another one would come up, and it was just finally, by the end of the day, I got them all. Nice. Fixed. So it's like the Pokemon of bugs. I mean, yeah. you know, it's the uh, hell is other people's code. Right. I'm not sure who says that, except for like everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it reminds me a lot of some of the code smells that we talked about in uh, previous episodes. Yeah, there there was a lot of code smells in that code, and if I had time to go rewrite it, I probably would. Also, last night I was working on some stuff and uh, ended up submitting to speak at another conference. This one will be in May of next year, up in New York City. And it's one we've talked about before. It's uh, Codeland, put on by our friends over at Code Newbie. So I submitted last year and didn't get selected. And I'm hoping I get in this year. I, I think I've got a, a little bit more experience. I've had a few conference talks under my belt now. So I'm, I'm hoping to get in. Yeah, and I'm probably, uh, I'll probably put in for a, a lightning talk at MicroConf this year. That's cool. Um, and it'd be right around the same time. Yeah. And... Finally, I got my bike running again, uh, spent a good deal of the day Saturday working on it, and then rode up to my dad's place yesterday. We had lunch and watched the Titans game. Then I rode back home. It was a good time. Speaking of time, yay daylight savings time. It gets dark so freaking early now. Sorry, I, I, I get frustrated by that. Yeah, um, I, it screws up my clock, like my yeah. body clock, and it... I, you know, I know the number of accidents increases. I really, I don't feel kindly towards DST. Yeah. And of course, when I got home, I had several messages from the Junior Developer Toolbox crew asking to borrow a microphone. Uh, they've been working really hard on the new show. And, uh, yeah, they've hit some bumps along the way, but it's really coming along. I'm kind of proud of them. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's um, it's 
a surprise how much work it takes to get a podcast going. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of folks just think, oh, you're talking to a microphone. It's like, that is such a small slice of what we actually, like, that's the smallest task we have. Right. Since I got my motorcycle out this weekend, I have something motorcycle related for IOTs. So this is a project called How to Make Your Motorcycle a Connected Motorcycle. Everything's becoming connected, and now with smart cars that are connected to your phone and other devices comes connected motorcycles. I read this article a little while ago, but the recent work I've been doing on my bike, it kind of makes sense to talk about it, and it's fresh on my mind. Basically, this takes an Arduino-based sensor and an app called Ride Data to record information about your ride. The app takes in the information from the sensor and from your phone, collects the data, and then helps you to make modifications and understand different things about your bike and what parts that you might want to add to it to make it a better ride. I've got the list of hardware and software needed and a link to that, and I'll put that in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we grabbed an email from Anna. It says, hi, BJ and Will. I'm currently enrolled in a web development coding boot camp, and I would love to get your thoughts on how the industry slash employers view boot camp grads. Additionally, I'd love to learn more about how to highlight some of the soft skills I've developed in a field outside of tech. Before this boot camp, most of my professional career has been in academia, higher education, a completely different field outside of tech. I even have a master's degree, again, unrelated to tech. While trying to break into the tech industry, how would I be able to leverage my years of experience working in higher education? The boot camp is teaching me the technical skills, but how do I highlight my soft skills? Lastly, any tips on how to better prepare for the job search and looking for my first junior dev position? I currently work full-time and attend the boot camp part-time, so my free time is limited, but I'm always looking for ways to learn more. Thank you for taking the time to read this email. Can't wait to listen to more episodes. You too rock. Well, hey, Anna, thanks so much for listening. I'm going to say one of the things that you can do, and I know this is sort of time consuming, but is something that Will and I both promote, and that is getting out and going to user groups and meetup groups. We run a group here in Nashville that is designed for people moving up or into a career as a developer. So we get a lot of people that are making that transition either into the field or moving from junior to mid, mid to senior like that. And we, we found that the people who are most successful are the ones that we see at other groups that are really active and out there. Part of that is they're meeting other people. They're meeting people at jobs. Well, they're meeting people at places that have jobs that when a position comes open, they're like, oh, hey, I know this person that's looking and can help them get into the process. Yeah. I mean, they're basically increasing their luck surface area. Yeah. Is, is effectively the way to, to think about that. I would also say that as far as soft skills, those kind of come out and become obvious. Um, having been on the interviewing side in tech, uh, the kind of people that do have soft skills, like it's pretty obvious when you're in the interview room with them um, because you meet so many that don't. Um, exactly. you just, you're you're going to already stand out. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost like I don't want to say be normal, but it's kind of right about there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think this will show um, just the fact that like the the tone you have in the email and all that kind of stuff too is 
you know, like I can tell you have soft skills, you're probably going to be all right. And it's probably going to be, uh, you know, I think you'll yeah. be set pretty much. And, you know, so far as using your skills from your previous job or previous career, really, you may not use them directly. Like I expected to go into the medical field. There's a lot of medical technology here. I'm not doing that. Right. But I still use a lot of the things that I knew from then that I learned there in what I do. Yeah. And I would, I would agree with that as well. Like, you know, I, I minored in history and you know, I actually ran into one of my history professors not all that long ago. And he was like, well, I guess you're not using that. And I'm like, I kind of, it does kind of come out a lot. In fact, yeah. uh, you're about to get a nice big dose of that in this episode. Oh, Yeah. You went full med student. Um, yeah, I totally did. I, I really enjoyed this one. The second part of this, <laughs> this series was a lot harder. Yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, it, it'll, I think most of the time what happens with the previous career stuff and the soft skill stuff is that it sort of comes out. Mm-hmm. Like it's hard to, it's hard to hide the fact that you have those when you're in an environment where so many people don't. So Anna, again, thanks so much for listening because we've already been in touch with her about a water bottle and by the time this episode airs, she should already have it. But if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Google+. We're also on Path and Tumblr. You can check us out each week on Facebook Live, Twitter Live, or Periscope. And we'll be adding more as we learn about them and... Yeah, you know, we're, we're learning and getting used to this whole live thing. But also, join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. So, the accurate measurement of time is a far more complicated task than you might imagine. Um, it's driven a lot of technological change and social change that you probably wouldn't expect. And it's, it's really altered human history in a lot of very surprising ways. And it's sort of like, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get the best way to put this. It's like technical debt. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our perception of time probably is older than our perception of language. Okay. So Will went full med student on this for a change as opposed to me going full med student on stuff. Yeah. And I cut so much out that it's not <laughs> even remotely funny. I mean, we could have, uh, you know, we were going back and forth on hangouts and I was like, huh. I could do an eight part series on this easily. Yeah, exactly. So why is this a series? Well, um, you know, in, in coding, you know how a couple of years of technical debt and multiple contributors makes maintaining a project really difficult. Yes. Well, our concept of date and time has been evolving with us across multiple continents over the past several thousand years, going back into prehistory um, to some point in prehistory. We don't know when. And then, of course, we also have the perception of time. Like most animals have some degree of perception of time as well, just in terms of, hey, they can tell that it's dark outside. So this predates our use of um, things like integers. (laughs) <laughs> if you want to you know, think about important computing concepts. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of essentially technical debt tied up in here and a lot of implementation details tied up in here. The other thing is, is time is basically the thing that everything else hangs off of in our perception of the world. There's not a single shared conception of time across all peoples and times in which those people lived either. Mm-hmm. And you know, ultimately, it's the result of a of some pretty complex interactions in space (laughs) we're going to get into here in a bit. So this episode is going to be the history of time. Roughly. 
And so we're going we're gonna to talk about different periods in history and how time was perceived and used in those different periods. First, we'll start with prehistoric and early historic interactions with time. Yeah, and, and the most obvious thing here is that knowing when it's about to get dark is really important to help you avoid getting eaten. Well, yeah. You, know, you had you know, you know had a lot of nighttime predators in prehistory. Um, you also had just snakes and stuff out. You had you know, the, a, a risk of falling, those kinds of things. There's actually a really interesting documentary on why you're afraid of the dark that goes into the human history behind just, you know, what we dealt with in prehistory and then like nasty things that happened, you know, in like the medieval period and just, you know, crazy stuff. But understanding when it's about to get dark is kind of important so that you're not out there in it. You also need to know timing of plantings, harvests, when the rainy seasons are going to be, when the, when the river might be flooding. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into that, you know, some, some very interesting things about that in a minute. The other thing too, is you got to know when the herds are going to move. Right. Um, because, you know, Hey, you've got all this equipment, all these people, I mean, you know, tents and stuff. Yeah. You can take those down pretty quick, but if you've got, you know, 50 people that that's not a quick task, you know, to get everybody on the move. So you, you kind of have to know in advance. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, the alignment of structures. Um, now there's a lot of woo woo crap around this concept. Like, you know, the pyramids are laid out to vaguely resemble this cluster of stars or whatever. And, you know, the alignments, I, I think a lot of that stuff is probably woo woo. Although I do think those people did look a whole lot, you know, they looked up a lot because like, that's all you can see at night, mm -hmm. but we did use that to figure out direction and we aligned buildings Accordingly, because, you know, you don't want like the entryway of your building to be pointed towards where the prevailing wind blows rain in, you know, just stuff like that. And time was kind of of the essence of that because it's it helps you figure out distance and it figure out direction and, and those kind of things like time is oriented with space. Well, another thing, speaking uh, of distance and direction is navigation. You know, the ancients did use the North Star to tell direction, but could do the same by the sun and other celestial objects with a rough idea of what time it was. Yeah. And they got better and better at this as oh, time yeah. went on. I when mean, some of those look people, at, like, look at what the Mayans did. Yeah. It's absolutely insane just how detailed they got. I think some of the navigation for the ships that yeah. crossed, like the early crossing of oceans. Right. The way they navigated is just. Yeah. And the stuff that they even, you know, just the stuff they have to do today yeah. even is it's still complicated. The other thing is that our interactions with time, you know, defined early historical norms. Um, people tended to cluster around the fire at night rather than wandering off because, again, you wander off, you don't come back. You you leave in the belly of a hyena. And, and this defined our social norms. You know, they think that a lot of our storytelling ability and our language ability kind of evolved at the, you know, basically at the edge of the campfire. That's where mm -hmm. our legends started and all the stuff that, you know, kind of makes us human instead of animals that can use fire that started there. Um, so it's, it's really tied in. Now the perception of time back then was very astrological at that point. It wasn't the quite the way we look at it. They didn't have a meeting at, at noon. It's like, ah, be around here around midday. Because they didn't, they didn't have that level of precision. Um, so it right. tended to be a lot more astrological. It relied on the movement of planets, stars, or the moon, or some combination thereof to figure out longer time cycles and shorter ones. I mean, early clocks basically were shadow clocks where the, the sun cast a shadow and pointed to. Yeah, to roughly what time it was. And you had to know, you know what part of the year. And right. Yeah, it, it was complicated. And 
this is actually still a pretty tricky thing. Um, it's because of the way the Earth moves in space. Now, school children are taught that the Earth spins in space and goes around the sun, creating respectively the, the day and the year. Right. Uh, months were typically figured out based on the phases of the moon, which has a 28-day cycle. So a lot of your older calendars, I think the Jewish calendars this way, mm-hmm. um, you know, some, some others are 28 days. Now, you'll note that a year of lunar months doesn't divide evenly into a year of 365 days. This was based on the, the moon going around, not us going around. Right. So, over time, you lose time, effectively, or you gain time. You know, you have a inaccuracy with your calendar. Yeah, there's, there's some accuracy, uh, plus or minus. Yeah. It's like guidelines. It's like the pirate code. Right, right. There you go. <laughs> so... While the Earth is going around the sun, so are the other planets. So predictions of where things are going to be start to get more complicated. Now, also bear in mind that orbits are not circular. They're elliptical. Right. And also the Earth doesn't spin perfectly on the axis. It wobbles, hence the equinoxes and such. Yeah, like the precession. Yeah. Um, you know, like they you know, they talk about like when the, what was the, you know, the major sun sign at the equinox when you know, the pyramids were built. It's not the same as now. It's like a 2600 year cycle. There's a there's a wobble. Yeah. And so they had a lot of real problems as far as coming up with accuracy. So the point is, just looking up at the sky doesn't give you a particularly good idea of time, at least not without a lot of extra work. Like you can go, yeah, it's the middle of the night, probably. But you can't go, it's 1238. Yeah. That's that's a challenge. So so they didn't have this sort of thing. Now, as we shift to early historical civilizations, we added some other concepts. Um, and the first one of these is the time value of money. What do, you th- what do you mean by that? Um, that's if, like, you borrow a dollar from me right now, it's worth more than a dollar because I could have done something else with it in the meantime. So, in other words, you have to compensate me more than a dollar at some later point for the value of the dollar now. Ah, interest. Yeah, it was, it was interest and debt and all that kind of stuff. Um, and just the concept of, of giving loans and having a time schedule of, of when you pay it back. You've got to have an accurate calendar to be able to do this well. I would assume, too, that the presence of inflation or deflation even would complicate this even more. Well, you can't really chart inflation or deflation without an accurate calendar. Right. Because you go, okay, yeah, there was inflation 3% over the last year, which, by the way, if you hear that from the U.S. government, that's a lie. You instead go, okay, ah, money's not worth as much. And that's about as good as you get without a calendar. Mm-hmm. Tying value to money is one of the things that makes this really complicated. You know, to be incentivized to take the risk of lending, there has to be an upside, which, as we discussed earlier, interest. Yeah. You know, but that also has to be balanced against the risk of total loss of not getting ever paid back or of, you know, the person you lent the money to dying before they can pay you back. Yeah. And having no relatives and they spent the money on booze and it, yeah, it complicates things, right? Uh, the other thing that these early historical civilizations added was a more granular understanding of the procession of time based upon astrological positioning. They paid careful attention to a dozen or so constellations and how they moved around the sky and how things in the sky moved around them. This is where you get the 12 houses of the zodiac and the you know, about a 30-degree angle of the sky is each okay. one, give or take-ish. That was a measurement of time because, hey, you didn't have clocks. It's also where we get... The phrase, the dog days of summer, because that's when the star Sirius, one of my favorite stars, by the way, rises over the horizon at about the same time as the sun. Yes. And this was actually very useful in ancient times because that's what they used to predict the flooding of the Nile. 
Oh, wow. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's a big honking river. Like you want to know if that thing's about to flood. Yeah. That That's important. Speaking of Egyptians, we probably got our concept of hours and days from the Egyptians. Yeah. At least the, the current understanding, not like it's dark and it's light, but here's when the day ends and here's when the next one begins. Yeah. They probably kind of firmed that up for us. Um, it might've been earlier mm-hmm. than that. Another thing that historical civilizations used time for was the bane of all existence. Taxes. Exactly. The Egyptians levied taxes every other year, but still devised a calendar of 365 days, having four seasons, mostly so, as Will said, they could predict the flooding of the Nile. Yeah, and I don't know why they just did the tax taxes every other year, except maybe just to let you know, the peasants kind of recover. If they had a little bit of a slow harvest or something like that, you know, that, that probably kept their civilization a little bit more stable. Hmm. Wonder how that would work in our civilization. Yeah. One wonders. Well, I'm, the the only problem I could see with that would be remembering which year is tax year. Yeah. Another thing that was very important in the ancient world was warfare. You had to pick your time for picking a fight with the neighbors so that you didn't screw up the harvest. So that your soldiers were back home in time for the planning so that they could harvest their crops and then get out to the battlefield. So military campaigns tend to be, you know, late fall type. Or so you didn't like, you know, die in the frozen tundra. Yeah. So you want to, you know, you want to hit them quick and get back. Right. And this actually somewhat limited the brutality of warfare, although warfare is not ever going to not be brutal. But they had a very limited season to do that and they didn't have a surplus population. Exactly. So you had to really work with timing. And this went all the way through the Roman period Mm -hmm. and probably well after. So time was measured by the position of the sun mostly or in some rather ingenious clocks, such as the Roman water clocks. We've talked about sundials measuring time based on the shadow the sun casts on it and a lot of other really interesting things. So next was the... You know, the next period that was you know, kind of important to our understanding of time is the Renaissance, the age of exploration, and the Industrial Revolution. And the reason I grouped these three is because we talk about these as if they're separate periods, but there's a lot of overlap mm-hmm. between them. You, know, you could say, okay, there, this was during the Italian Renaissance, but it was the age of exploration because Columbus hit the New World in 1492. Right. So commercial processes got more complicated and time-bound due to the way they were scaling out. Yeah, so you had larger populations, um, uh, territories that were over a larger area. So, for instance, when Rome fell, uh, especially after like the plague of Justinian and some of those kind of things that, that happened, your population in Europe just fell through the floor. A lot of roads kind of corroded away, and there just wasn't there wasn't much there. You know, this is why they called it the Dark Ages in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. It wasn't entirely dark, but there wasn't as much stuff, and there weren't as many people. And Europe's population didn't really recover to Roman levels until I think like the 1800s. It's either 1800s or 18th century. I can't remember which one. Well, you're, you're like within the realm of 100 years. So. Right. So essentially, as, you know, as the population curve started coming back after the Black Death, you had a lot of consolidation of power and a lot better roads. You started having better navigation. And so you had to be able to get things from point A to point B on time. And it wasn't hey, we've got to be accurate within three or four hours. It's you've got to be accurate within three or four hours over the next two months. Well, longer sea voyages required that accuracy in timekeeping in order to figure out their longitude. Right. Because otherwise you don't know how far west you are. Yeah. And that 
that doesn't sound real important because you know, typically people in, in our era go, oh, well, you know, if you're out in the ocean, you just keep going. Well, what they don't realize is, is okay, there's no helicopter that's going to come drop food off on you. You've got to know, can I make it to this other place? Mm-hmm. And yes, I know my latitude based on things, but I don't know. I don't know how far out I am. So I could run into shoals. I could run into a reef. You had a shipwreck then. There was no radio signal. You just died. So it was very, very important to know your longitude. And to do that, you did have to have very accurate representation of time. Another thing that happened during this period, especially as you get into the Industrial Revolution, is that industrial processes started requiring more accurate measure of time and distance as well. Of course, the two things are are sort of related concepts. For instance, if you are forging steel, you don't want to heat it for too long at a certain temperature, and you don't want to heat it for too short of a time. You change the characteristics of the metal. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the alloy, basically, when you when you do this. And so you had to be more and more accurate. The same thing with, you know, commercial baking, you know, wine production, all these different things. They, they had to get more and more accurate over time. And obviously being able to figure out, okay, how, you know, how far does this thing need to travel? You know, how far do I want to send this cannon shell <laughs> as well? Like those those kind of calculations started coming in. And also, there were a lot of significant changes in the social norms around time. More people start to be employees rather than working for themselves. And more people lived in urban centers as well. Yes. And I mean, we had, you know, we had people that were not necessarily employees. We had serfs yeah. before. But the, the thing with the serfs was, is they kind of, you know, on the manorial system, yes, they, they had a chunk of land, and, but they were somewhat in charge of their own time. It's just they had a certain degree of output they were expected to produce. Yeah. Versus, okay, you're expected to show up and be here for this number of hours. And that really changes things when it's you work the fields from, you know, You work up, until you're done. Yeah. You you work until you're done or sun up Literally. or sun down. Like you work until you can't work anymore because to, all right, you work these hours and then you go home to your family. Right. So that that changed things. Another big change were significant increases in travel speed and reliability, basically meaning that people are able to schedule things more tightly. Yeah, so they do. Yeah. Um, you know, as human beings, we tend to kind of reach the you know, the limit of our capabilities. We've done this in, in the modern era as mm-hmm. well, which is why everybody's so stressed out now is because we've scheduled everything very, very tightly. And if you're five minutes late for work, it's... You know, it's like a human tragedy. I don't know how many people you, 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 you deal with these kind of people too, right? Like they get into work and they're five minutes late and the rest of their day is shot in the medieval period. They didn't even know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. You know, it, it does fascinate me because I used to be like this and, and just going back into sort of a soft skills kind of thing from a history lesson. You know, guys, I used to take on more and more. And you knew me back when I did this. I did this in high school. I did this in college even. I would take on more and more and more until I got to the point where there was, I had no extra time. No, I don't want to say free time. I, you had no buffer. Right. I had no buffer. And I would do that for as long as I could sustain it until I would get sick. And you crack under pressure, you get sick and you take a few days off and then you started the whole cycle again, gradually snowballing it. it was, yes. It was like a repeat 
cycle. Actually, we could have used that as a primitive calendar had we not already had one. Yes. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty straight on <laughs> cyclical the way you did it. And I did that all the way up until probably graduate school. Uh, Dude, no. <laughs> you did that at your wedding. <laughs> dude, I, I didn't have a choice at my wedding. <laughs> like, you try planning a wedding in your second year of med school. I know. With a wife who is in med school too, you you don't have a choice. I know. I was gonna say like it didn't stop at grad school. <laughs> it it did. It it really did. Stop. Really? Yeah. It it stopped at grad school. I I did not. I learned how to stop adding on. Now I learned how much I could do. Yeah. Like you you. I think that's the thing that you you do pretty well is like you've realized now. Okay, I can if I stay right under this asymptote. Yes, I'm okay. <laughs> and I will get right to that point and I will I will coast there. Yeah, you'll coast there for a lot longer than you used to be able to. Although you'll get a bump and then you're just Oh yeah, I, it, it, <laughs> like a little bump will throw me off. But I and I'm getting better about not taking on that much. But in what did it was was med school where I literally could not take on that much. Right. And and that's that's sometimes what has to happen. You have to be in a situation where you can't do any more. And people found that they could do more, so they did. Yeah. And they started traveling fast enough and communicating fast enough that things like time zones start having to be used. Yeah. And this is right at the you know very, very tail end you know, of the Industrial Revolution. You didn't typically see this with boat traffic. This was more of, you know, hey, you've got rails at this right. point. No. Um, but yeah, it, it was when you travel over a great distance like that, you know, the clocks in every town were different mm-hmm. for a very long period of time. We finally realized, hey, this is nuts. Like, we don't know what time it is anywhere. We say, okay, I'm going to deliver this by five o'clock. Well, we stopped in this town and it's 4.59. The guy is from the next town over and it's 5.12 over there. And now he's mad. And we arrived, you know, way ahead of schedule according to our clock. And so they kind of had to start standardizing after the Industrial Revolution because otherwise everything was chaos. And also, energy use during war and energy use considerations, basically in general, caused daylight savings time to be implemented. The bane of my existence right Other now. Other than taxes, yes. Yeah. Um, because that happened this past weekend, and I'm a wreck right now. Because I should be in bed. Yeah, you should. I, should. I should be on my way home. Yeah, stopping at McDonald's. You know my pattern. Getting the, getting the healthy food. <laughs> Get a little soy. Get a little, uh, get a little whatever that is in the burgers. Actually, I, I haven't eaten at McDonald's in quite a while. Really? No yeah. gray meat chicken nuggets? No. Wow. I, I kind of cut that out when I stopped having to travel as far to get home. Yeah, I can um, see that. Once I moved up here, it's like, oh, I can go home and fix food that tastes. That doesn't do that to me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's just put it that way. So, yeah. You know. Daylight savings time started in Canada in 1908 and was introduced in the U.S. in 1918 during the tail end of World War One. And a lot of that, you know, had to do with basically the consumption of fuel at that point for for lighting mm-hmm. and those kind of things. And so, if you had an advantage militarily in your burn rate of your fuel, you lasted longer. Um, this was one of the things in World War Two that really uh, screwed the Germans over was. They didn't have any fuel, among other things, like everything being on fire. Well, yeah. And towards the end of this period, you start to see time being measured with mechanical clocks. 
Now, the next thing was the Great Wars in the Space Age and the Computer Age. And, and again, that brings us to now. So where we are now. Right. And you know, these things overlap because they all kind of developed together. Right. Time calculations and manipulations are deeply embedded in practically everything we do. We have a few examples that we're going to talk about sort of to close out the episode. Yeah. So the first one is machine timings in factories. So like think about your dishwasher or not your dishwasher. Think about your your washing machine. And I said wash with an R because I'm from where I'm from. Right. You have a powder coating on there. Mm-hmm. I had a friend that actually worked on the machines that do powder coating. And you have to be very, very precise on how you apply it because otherwise you get too much and that stuff is expensive. Yeah. Or you get too little and the thing rusts because, hey, it's got water around it everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in a damp kind of environment. So you, you've got to get this just right. Well, the timing on that machine is based around time. Uh, the way that volumes of liquids get pumped, you know, you know, the, you know, the amount that it can pump in a certain amount of time. The way you say, I want to pump this amount is you say, I want it to pump for this amount of time. Right. That's how that stuff kind of works out. And, and I mean, I think of... The assembly line where injection molding. Right. Where it just, it comes on, like the the mold comes under, it injects, moves on. Next mold comes under, injects, moves on. And the neat thing about this is it's timed, but you can change out those molds. Right. And the other thing that, that happens is there's a bit of a relationship here between the amount of volume of something you can pump or that you can move mm-hmm. in an amount of time and the accuracy of the time. In other words, like if I if I have a, a low degree of time accuracy, I have to use a slower pump or I have to use a slower device because which means I can't get as much throughput on the line. Right. And you can tell I play Factorio a lot when I say this. <laughs> he does. <laughs> because oh my I, goodness, he tells me about it all the time. Yeah. So but you have to you kind of have to deal with that. Well, as you get where you can get more granular time measurements, you can push things through a system faster, you know, in a production environment. Okay. Speaking of accuracy, you also need accurate time measurements for GPS readings. Yeah. So like if you're using Apple Maps, do you remember when that first came out? Yeah, I remember it telling me to drive into a lake. I just I just remember the one where they showed like Amelia Earhart's plane and there's like a phone on the dashboard that has <laughs> Apple Maps displayed. <laughs> I remember that. Yes. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Because, you know, GPS is, I won't say that it's like super tricky, but it's a triangulation thing, right? You've got multiple mm-hmm. satellites in the sky and basically your time measurement has to be on point so that you go where you're trying to go. So, for instance, if you go downtown in Nashville close to the river, there's a few spots there. If you're, if you're driving through looking for somewhere, the GPS thinks you're in the river because of the way it bounces off the buildings. Oh, oh, it, you don't have to be down near the river for it to be off. I where I work uh, near Capitol Hill, I was trying to find out where a certain restaurant was and it had me like way. Yeah. I was off, off by like six or 700 yards. Yeah. And you know, like the way I get out of downtown is I don't ever use the GPS. I just go, okay, where's the middle of town? Let's go away from that. Oh, and I get to somewhere where I can use GPS. So I, I take that back. I take that back. What happened was see what happened was thank you. I did that. So you could say that, uh, I was actually getting food from the Chick-fil-A in our building. And now an update to the Chick-fil-A app, they have a map on there that shows you how close you are to the location that you've selected. 
and it had like I was trying to say I'm here and it kept saying no you're not you're three blocks away and I'm like I'm here I had to hit it like three or four times for it to override the <laughs> wow. the GPS in there that w- kept saying no you're not here yet I guess because they have people that say I'm here when they haven't arrived yet yeah so but, they can get ahead and lie you know, or whatever come on I you got to deal with the inaccuracy there and. Obviously, I'm standing there hitting the button. I could have gotten in line and gotten my food faster. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and accurate time measurement is a big part of this because what you're doing is you get signals from multiple satellites and you have to calculate distance based off of a distance in time mm-hmm. You know, because the, the transmission rate is going to be the same. Light will travel 30 centimeters in about a nanosecond or a meter in three and a third nanoseconds and what this means is is if you're off by say 100 nanoseconds you're off by this much distance it also kind of depends on how many satellites you have and all that so you can home in on it so if you don't have a very accurate clock and let's say you have i don't know a one second resolution um you're like it's useless you know that you're in the southeast yeah somewhere maybe Mm mm-hmm so, GPS, in turn, is used to guide missiles and airplanes to their destination, as well as for calculating the costs and timelines for shipping goods. Being off by one billionth of a second will create one foot of inaccuracy. Yeah, which with the missile, you know what the military does. They just go, well, we'll just put more explosives on it. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, well, um, you know. But they do like to be... Fairly accurate because, you know, it turns out that like if you hit the wrong target, you know, that that's a that's an increasingly bad problem. Right. We've also mm-hmm. got social norms that have evolved around the fact that we have better time measurement that allows us to be more accurate mm-hmm. with with our warfare and stuff. Exactly. So another one that comes up is a lot of authentication protocols over the Internet and other systems have got a time component to them. And this is basically to cut down on replay attacks where somebody catches the packets that are going back and forth and then they replay them again to the same server an hour later or something and try to get in. Now they can't because that the timestamp is also part of this. And so you obviously want to be very accurate. Um, I know Kerberos does this under the hood, which Kerberos, uh, which is interesting, is actually named for uh, the dog in the underworld, basically. So basically what happens there is the key that you get or whatever uh, token you get mm-hmm. is only good for a short period of time and has to be renewed. That basically keeps somebody else from getting it unless they get it in a really short period of time and they're able to replay. And by the way, you're also probably doing this over an encrypted channel anyway. So they're going to have to break the decryption and then they're going to have to do something mm-hmm. to, to get at it. So it, it it cuts down on the attack surface, at least for a while. Whenever we get quantum computing, that may we may have to come up with something else. Well, every time we get something new like that, we have to completely change. Right. I mean, these, these algorithms evolve a lot. Right. And I mean, we've had to do, you know, deal with this kind of stuff at work um, as far as like C-surf protection and those you know, uh, mm-hmm. cross-site request forgery protection, because you don't want, you know, essentially a replay attack to happen. And so that's, this happens in the middle of this. Also, you need extremely accurate measurements for scientific and manufacturing applications. This includes everything from laser measurements of distance to measuring the volume of fluids going through a pipe to gas spectrometry, all sorts of different things that are used in various industries. Think about filling up your car with gas. Right. Like that thing isn't 
isn't going, okay, I know I pumped this much. Like there's a, there's actually a fair amount of inaccuracy in those pumps. Oh yeah. Um, Cause my, my father's in that business and basically what it's doing is it's going, okay, I know this thing can pump this amount and this amount of time within some tolerance. Mm-hmm. And I measure the time to figure out the volume. There's also, there's a, some other things that are, that come into the mix too, like uh, terminal evaporation allowance, a TEA thing, which is basically how much outgassing of gas fumes happened. You know, there's, there's all kinds of other stuff, but you, you have to have a fairly accurate perception of time uh, for the, for the pump timings and also for, for actually accurately tracking how much gas you're, you're putting out. Another area you need accurate measurement is timing within computer processors and communication devices. And we're going to get into a lot more detail on this in the following episode. Yes. And I mean, this gets used at a real low level, mm-hmm. uh, especially like if you're t- looking at uh, network protocols, you know, when you're at the, when you're at the bottom layer, it's like, Hey, I have a waveform and it has to be at the right timing. Otherwise the other side can't read it. Right. And so keeping that crisp and clean is, is kind of a function of time effectively. And you, you've got to have that measurement down where you can, where you can accurately make the chip act right. Mm-hmm. So we currently measure time using cesium-133 atoms in an atomic clock, that and a few other different isotopes, but cesium is a pretty common one. Typically some sort of clock is used locally, like a quartz oscillator that is lower accuracy, which then is synchronized with a more accurate and expensive clock elsewhere. And radioactive. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's not forget that. It's like, you know, you don't want your bedside table clock to be, you don't want it to be radioactive, even if it's mildly, you know, it's like. The, it's not the 1950s. We don't want to be wearing radioactive materials on our wrists. Yeah. That's just, you know, common sense and all. So we want that stuff to be away, but we have to have some accurate timekeeping for in between when we synchronize. Yeah. Also, your calendar, no matter how complex, is several orders of magnitude less dependent on extremely accurate time operations than pretty much all the rest of civilization. Yeah. By the time you count manufacturing and tooling, and I, I can't really think of very many areas where, you know, especially with engineering type disciplines, that mm-hmm. you're not going to really need accurate, you know, super duper accurate time measurements right. just so that you can get through the day. Mm-hmm. Guys, time is a complex subject and is heavily tied into our understanding of the universe and the world around us. In addition to distance and direction, time is probably one of the most important ways that we organize our reality. Check us out next week when we talk about how this applies to computer science, coding, programming, and software development. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I want to point something out that is painfully obvious by looking at Facebook that most people don't seem to realize. And that is that most of the world that we have today is the result of years of compromises. Not not even necessarily just years, but centuries of compromises. And we've made a lot of decisions over time that maybe weren't optimal, but that was the decision we made then. And it got us through some point in the past. I just want to point out that maybe... You need to be a little careful when you start looking for stuff to change. People tend to suggest changes based on how they feel about something and they don't think about what's going on. So, for instance, you see somebody that goes, oh, I hate crossing this pasture. And this is a totally country example. But let's say they're crossing a pasture and they see a fence. I hate that fence is there. It's rusty. I can't believe it's there. It's, it's ugly. And so they tear it down and they don't ask why it was there. 
Well, the bull may be out in the field that day and suddenly runs out in the road and gets run over. You don't want to be the guy that tears down the fence without knowing why it's there. It's just, it's kind of a common sense thing that I think we've, we've lost to a large degree in our modern civilization that sometimes stuff is there for a reason and maybe we ought to explore the reason a little bit more before we start trying to fix it. So just kind of keep that in the back of your head because you're going to deal with a lot of that in computer science. I know that Beach and I regularly have conversations about this where there's something that's like, oh man, this is so dumb. And we, you know, it's a decision that was made you know, 50 years ago in computing where you're like, this doesn't make any sense at all. But it was, it was to solve a particular problem and it's now an artifact. So just keep that in mind. That's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Look for us each week on Facebook Live before we record each episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.